Welcome to the Good Life EDU podcast presented by the Nebraska ESU Coordinating Council. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the latest in digital learning across Nebraska and around the country. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back for another episode of the Good Life EDU podcast. And I've been waiting for today's conversation for quite some time, uh, as I'm really fascinated by, uh, obviously, artificial intelligence. And so folks that have been uh, longtime listeners of the show can go back and listen to previous conversations where we've done everything from onboarding to key terms uh, to thinking about that as it pertains to things like inclusion practices and where this maybe meets the work that educators do in the classroom and natural evolution of this conversation. At some point, we've got to start to entertain where does this meet what the learners are doing and how they're perceiving this. And so we're going to talk AI literacy today, media literacy today. And I can think of no one better than Julie Smith, who is a good friend who we actually were just catching up, known since 2018. Uh, and she we were, is... so, we were so young then, Andrew. We were so young then. <laughs> I feel it some days, Julie. <laughs> I feel it for sure. Uh, but I will say Julie is faculty at the School of Communications in Webster University, uh, which is actually in St. Louis, which is very close to where I grew up. So we kind of connect around Cardinals baseball and those kind of things as well. Um, not this season. Not this but... season. We do not want to talk about Cardinal baseball this that season. That is true. We need to turn the page on the current yeah. current season for sure. Uh, and I will say that, gosh, Julie's been in this space in the classroom at Webster University since 1997 and released the book Master the Media in 2015, which is incredible, really a, an evergreen text in terms of something that you can always go back to regardless of what technology is out there uh, and continue to learn and let it inform uh, how you navigate processing media and content in those spaces. So that huge introduction out of the way here, Julie, welcome back to the podcast. It's so great to see you, friend. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, and thanks for giving a little space to have today's conversation. Here's where I'm personally at with this. I know we have an election year coming up next year. Uh, I also know that chat GPT and these other chat bots like that, where there are probably at least 10 prominent ones at this point in time, are going to continue to evolve. Uh, chat GPT 4 Turbo just came out with multimodal capabilities. And I know five's on the way in December, which means this might look very different by the spring for folks that are like, oh, this is a chat bot I can talk to via text. Wow, is it going to transform right in time for an election year? Uh, and so with that as a backdrop, uh, I'm just interested to know what you're thinking, what you're seeing, and how uh, you might be able to give us a few things over the course of today's conversation. And I say a few things, this is a big bucket of work to and, talk about. Yeah. And there are a lot of reasons to dread the next election, for sure. But the role that AI could possibly play, I think, is really worth talking about in advance so that we can arm ourselves. And like you mentioned, ChatGBT, that's just the tiny, tiny tip of the iceberg. There's so many image creation, video creation, AI tools that any Joe Schmo can use to create something that really looks legitimate. So I think we're going to be entering this phase where, once again, we have to be really, really skeptical of everything that we consume on the media, mainly for a few reasons. Only 28% of Americans now actually trust the mainstream or legacy media. Most people are getting their news. I'm using air quotes for news. Most people are getting their news from social media platforms where we are congregating with people who think, feel, believe in both the way that we do, right? And now we have the capability to create things that look legitimate, really look legitimate. So I think that we're going to really have to have our antennas up high for any political information, regardless of the source or the platform where we find it. 
Another thing that concerns me, because a lot of people talk about shallow fakes and deep fakes. A shallow fake, if, if you're not familiar, is a video that already did exist and it's just tweaked. Like the video of Nancy Pelosi that went viral. It was an, an authentic video, but they just slowed down the audio to make it sound like she was hammered. And then that's what went viral. So that's a shallow fake because the video did originally exist. Deep fakes can be easily created by AI tools. And it used to be, you know, like the people at Berkeley and MIT could use it. Well, now, because the AI tool is coming hard and fast, anybody can create a deep fake that looks pretty legitimate and have their candidate say whatever they want or the candidate they don't want to win say whatever they want. And what scares me, well, there are a lot of things that scare me about that, but say, for example, that you are a political candidate and you get caught on film doing something inappropriate or saying something inappropriate. You can just say then that it was a deep fake. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I hadn't really thought about that. And yeah. it's going to cause people to like question, I mean, in all ways, what they're seeing. And we're not used right. to that. Right. And so, you know, after the 2016 election, people were talking about how we're living in a post-truth era. Now I feel like we're going into a post-trust era where we really don't know what to trust anymore. And as educators, it's difficult to trust some of the things that get turned into us because now we're, we're also skeptical about how much of the student work has been AI generated. And we don't trust each other anymore. So it's, it's a very strange time. And I worry that the election next year is really gonna bring out the worst in everybody, sadly. Oh. Same, and I—I I, uh, know I'm bringing down the room. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, well, Julie. Maybe this dark. Is, no, this is part of the reason why I appreciate our friendship and the, the opportunity to chat with you when I get to. Because I like to be practical about things. I like to to have a healthy. Give me the good, bad, and the ugly. Because I know that I can be a change agent for good in the midst of it all, but I have to know what I'm up against. And that's why I always appreciate um, that practical look that you bring to conversations like this, because you, you do need to have a healthy assessment of the situation. And I have really appreciated reading articles from The Atlantic recently from Jonathan Haidt. Oh my gosh, look, I hey. just printed it yesterday. Yes, that, right. That guy, And he's got several others. And so if folks are kind of interested, check that stuff out, because that really... I think is informative with regards to things like, you know, he references the echo chambers that we all maybe refer to as the bubbles within which our social media algorithms kind of land us in a group of people and it's hard to get away from. But also too, and, and maybe a little bit of a call to educators is that what it causes people in the middle between the polarized ends of the narratives that we tend to see out there is to shy away from being able to be supportive of those more, maybe just to not get too political about it, like to say, Folks that are willing to listen and, and entertain ideas without having to accept them and share something that is in the middle get quieted because of the tone and rhetoric of some of the louder ends of both spectrums. Well, and the louder ends of the spectrum make for better stories and make for better news. And headlines. And, and headlines. Like, and the whole reason, remember, the whole reason the media exists is not to educate us or inform us or entertain us. They exist to make money. So talking to some centrist isn't going to draw the clicks, but I have to read you this sentence from the article that I printed. Up yesterday. And this is about kids on smartphones. Social media, he concluded, was shaping their view that society is in permanent conflict, which in turn led to ideas about microaggressions and competitive victimhood. All this he found was damaging young people's mental health. Competitive victimhood. 
that was a phrase, and, and we see this here at the university a lot with the, I'm kind of changing topics on the fly here, and I'm sorry. Um, no, please continue, because I feel like this gives some context to the why behind the need for the support that is what we might come around because these things exist, because this is the backdrop, perhaps, right? right? I don't want to like speak to where you're going, but that feels no, like and, where we're at. And so, of course, now, you know, I see everything through a media literacy lens. Who's the sender of the message? What's their motive or intent? How's the message designed? What information is left out? And who benefits or profits from this? What's tough now, Andrew, is that first question, who's the sender? Because who the sender of the message is, isn't necessarily the creator of the message. It's not the provenance of the message. And that's where I think it's going to get sticky with AI because we won't be able to tell who actually created it. It'll be easy to tell what the motive is, but finding out who the actual creator is of that message is going to be harder than finding out who the sender is because it was, you know, your Aunt Jewel on Facebook. Well, and, and when that's the case, it's already difficult for people to take the extra time to follow through with step one of those five. But if that step is particularly misleading or difficult, then It'll it shuts stop. you down before you even get into it, right? Right. And so there's there's research actually that came out yesterday that said that if people see a political message that they don't like, that's when they double check it for authenticity. But if it is a message that they like, they don't want to check it in case it's not correct, right? Because we're very comfortable. And, you know, that, that whole comfort thing is a feature and a bug because I have media literacy colleagues around the country who are feeling like a lot of people just don't care. Like they are so comfortable in their bubble. They don't want to analyze the 11 to 12 hours of media messages that they receive every day. That's work. And it kind of upsets the apple cart. We, we like being comfortable. Would you say then that that has led to influencer culture in some regard? Like that the factors lead is to say that because I don't have the time, effort to put towards knowing all that's out there in a world that has so much information that it can be overwhelming, that I would rather trust, uh, and I do, I'd rather trust Julie Smith and not to call you an influencer, but to say like that we point to people that we feel like do that work with authenticity and best of intentions and with the hopes that they are doing some of that on the back end for us. But not always is that the case when they start to no. get sponsored. Well, and also what I think is really interesting, there was an article in the New York Times recently saying that the younger generation really prefers to receive information from faces and not from words. And they're using TikTok as the new Google as a search engine. And so when I do workshops for high schoolers, I'm like, please, for the love of God, <laughs> TikTok for entertainment, not for knowledge or facts. But I can see how that happens. If you, you know, if you've been following somebody on TikTok or YouTube for years, you feel like you know them and that gives them credibility. So they might be, they might tell you something that's completely wacky, but you're going to believe it because you've spent every afternoon with them for three years. So the authenticity, I think, has a different feeling for uh, those of us that aren't in that generation. And I, and again, maybe we're a little bit of still setting the context for things, but I know a number of the conversations that I've had recently have been, well, what skills are going to prevail in a world that has all of these tech tools and AI available? 
and I, I feel like communication skills continue. And I, like, let's not get away from the things that have always been true. The ability to communicate still matters. And, and maybe more so even just with being in the room, right, than it has before, where we're talking about things like you're sharing there with text versus faces. Uh, right. And I do think authenticity. I, I think that someone's willingness to share something that is true to them, that you can't Google, that you can't necessarily create on ChatGPT, that you could, you know, like do a version of that, but it certainly doesn't just have that that personal element that that individual's perspective brings. I think that people crave authenticity in today's world. I know I'm not the only one who used to look at Facebook and think, okay, I know what's really going on with them. And yet this doesn't match at all what they're posting online, right? Like we, we are craving that authenticity. So like you said, the, the communication skills, the, the eye contact, the personal connection, the ability to carry on a conversation. These are things that we're actually helping the college students with now. And, and there's a lot of reasons for that. The smartphones, the pandemic didn't help, but the basic social skills. And, you know, I've had a lot of high school administrators tell me that the behavior is completely different now than it was before the pandemic. It's like we've it's almost like, and this is going to sound alarmist, but it, I almost feel like a lot of these social media platforms have just thrown that generation under the bus for the sake of profit. And I don't know if, if we're at the point where we can predict what the long-term outcomes of that are. Yeah. Gosh. And here, maybe we're just sort of speculating different factors about things. <laughs> I also wonder too, so uh, iPhone came out in 2007 probably widely used around 2008. And so if I work from there, then that tells me that freshmen, uh, current freshmen, are some of the first generation to be raised by parents who had an iPhone available the entirety of that time. And the degree to which, uh, whether we're at the dinner table or we're relaxed on the couch at night, and I am as guilty at times as anyone else is, and so I don't say this with any sort of finger pointing or from any place where, um, but I, I recognize that the ability to have authentic conversations, to be able to teach your kiddos how to be active listeners and participatory within the rhythms of what go it goes on at home has been influenced um, and in some ways for good, right? By having those te technologies available because maybe I didn't wander around lost for two hours when I couldn't find out how to get somewhere. <laughs> but, but yeah, that's also with the pandemic and with a number of these other things that plays a factor in that. And and I do think, yeah, to add to our list, active listening is really important to foster in kids. And maybe that active listening is different than what I think happens a lot of times on social media platforms is that we don't, we don't listen to understand. We listen to figure out how we're going to respond. And you know what? I had a high school student come up to me after a workshop one day, and she said, I really wish my mom wasn't on her phone so much. And it kind of broke my heart a little bit because we're so used to saying, well, those kids, right? And their FOMO and their compare and despair. Well, adults feel that too. I mean, I cannot get on Pinterest, Andrew. I can't. Nobody lives like that, really. Like no one's front porch at Halloween really looks like that. Like it makes you feel like you, you cannot measure up. And so I think if we're talking about cell phone use and the ability to process information, I think we have to talk about everybody, not just the kids. Absolutely. So I guess that's a good place for us to kind of pivot a little bit out of the context, which I was grateful for us to have established here and, and just to help us then. And you referenced it earlier, the five 
steps through which you, know, you want to process media uh, as we're uh, exposed to that. And as we did with step one there already, maybe a, a quick reiteration of it, the challenges posed by this new generative technology across those and things that we might start to look for in our own lives as we've established here, but then also in, in our children and students. Um, and my advice to administrators right now, when they ask, you know, what, what should our AI policy be? My advice is don't do anything yet. It's too early. Anybody that says they're an expert in this stuff is lying. It hasn't been around long enough yet. I think it'll be interesting to see like a year from now. And in fact, I have a Google sheet that I will share with you, Andrew, of about 240 different AI tools and they're categorized by what they do. Some are free, some aren't. They're all interesting, but it'll be interesting to see in a year or two how many of those sites are still in existence. But no matter what the message is and no matter what the platform is where we're receiving these messages, we have to ask ourselves, how does this make me feel? Who benefits from this? Who profits from this? And it's usually never us. <laughs> usually is it. And as we bring the discussion more towards AI, you know, especially for those free tools, how is open AI making money? What's their motivation? And where's where's the end zone? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not sure if our uh, listeners have I feel like I read a lot of things sometimes and I have a lot of informal conversations and I can't remember exactly where those uh, have landed. But, you know, with Google, you pay for the advertisement. You, you pay to be at the top of the search. You pay to be the ad at the top of the search, right. those type of things. And uh, for those that are familiar with the chatbots, it's not the same. So, Julie, maybe speak to how it is that these companies are getting funding uh, for well, these chatbots. Yeah, a lot of the tools that I've looked at so far, like the, a lot of the tools that are on that sheet that I will send you. They, you start out free, and then to get the full bells and whistles, you end up having to pay or get on some pricing plan. Um, it could be that a lot of the sites that are offering all of these tools for free are doing it so that we get hooked, and then maybe they bait and switch us into paying later. Or they could start to sell advertising depending on what their click rates are. I, I don't know. I think it's really, I think it's really interesting. How does OpenAI make money? And I, I don't know that. I need to really kind of get into that. Because what's their motive? Yeah. And I, well, and this is something I came across recently is that, but they're lowering the cost by two thirds from what it had previously been that uh, OpenAI will let you build something off of their large language model for a fee. Okay. And that so all sense. of these other companies, what they're doing is basically plugging into that, paying OpenAI and then, and then charging, charging us. you. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it takes that to a whole new level. You know, when I when I tell the kid, if you're using an app or a website for free, you're not the customer. You're the product being sold. Your eyeballs are being sold to, to the highest bidder. So I think it's going to be really interesting in the next couple of years how this is all going to shake out. But I really worry about it for the election. And I think it's important. We always talk about lateral reading and media literacy. If you see something that's supposed to be happening, check it on other sources to see if other people are talking about it or if it's just some weird meme on Facebook. I would also recommend that people do lateral reading with all the fact checkers. There's a lot of different fact checkers. In fact, Google has come up with a couple new fact checking tools, but don't just use one fact checking tool. I would do lateral fact checking and, and check several of them. But then again, we're talking time, right, Andrew? We're talking time. We are. Well, and I don't even know about these fact checkers. So could you maybe tell me a little bit more? I mean, clearly then I need to up my game in terms of 
how I'm trying. Well, I, I just like totally exposed myself there. Raise my hand. I have a, you know what? I have a list of those too. I'll send you the list of those. Good. I will put those in the show notes. Um, okay, yeah. Both lists for folks so, to access. But go ahead and speak to like what those yeah. are and kind of how that works. Here at the university, we call it digital forensics. So you're you're digging through, trying to figure out what's real and what's not. And, you know, the classic Google reverse image search, which I think is one of the best tools. And when I'm talking to high schoolers, I encourage them, you know, if you're talking to somebody online and you haven't met them and they will not Zoom with you, they will not Skype you, they will not FaceTime you, that is a red flag, drag their profile picture through Google reverse image search, see if that person really is who they say they are. Then, of course, Snopes is classic. Uh, There's one called Hoax Slayer. There's one called Emergent. Politico has its own fact-checking Uh, Google has come out with two different fact checking. There's loads of them that we can put in the show notes. But again, don't trust just one. And I think there was an article once, the headline was, media literacy is all about where to spend your trust. Where do we put our trust? And I think it's getting harder and harder to figure that out. Especially with, so we live in a visual society now, right? Not a literate society. And photographs and videos can be so emotionally compelling especially during breaking news, especially during wartime. And it's so easy to take something that's legitimate, like an, an older video or an older photo, and then just repackage it for whatever's happening at that moment. So that that's where a lot of the fact-checking tools come in handy, like Google reverse image search. Uh, I'm going to see how many different topics I can talk to you about in a short time period, Andrew. I'm all over the place, and I'm sorry. No, this stuff's important, though, to, again, think about as it pertains to this new technology, because I would assume then that those fact checkers are going to be confused as to where this came from when it's originated uh, by a generative AI piece and posted for the first time by the person that you first heard it from. Yeah. So there's there's a really interesting website called thispersondoesnotexist.com. And every time you refresh it, it generates a new face of someone who doesn't exist. And I'm always thinking, gosh, you know, if I run a bot farm, these are my profile pictures. Because if even if you Google reverse image search them, nothing else is going to come up. Yeah. So there's <laughs> there's that too. It's it's exciting and nerve-wracking, but the media is always changing, always changing. I think something that's interesting is that, um, and I need to look this up, but there's the stories about how long it took for Americans to all have radios and how long it took for Americans to all have television and cable and how long it took for people to get cell phones and now like what is it a hundred million people were using chat gpt in like a month the first month so it's almost like we're moving so fast that we're not paying attention to what we're doing and that sometimes makes me a little nervous and that brings up two things that i've kind of been kicking around recently and one is I heard like a really amazing analogy recently that said that if you took two trees and put one under the shade of uh, a mother tree next to it, that its bark, uh, it grows slower and its bark grows harder. And over the long run, it will have a longer lifespan than one if you let it grow out in a field by itself that would in the early stages grow faster, but ultimately would not be as sturdy or as solid at its core. And I made a connection between that and just thinking about our obsession with turning this technology to the next page as quickly as we can get it to grow without um, solidifying it as being quality ahead of time under the guidance of a previous tree. Uh, If you want to keep that sort of analogy, keep playing out. And I think that speaking to that made me forget the second point. So I'll throw it back to you. (laughs) I'm sure. um, All of the new AI tools are coming hard and fast, right? We don't really know a ton about it. And there's no regulation 
and I'm not, you know, I'm not a fan of government regulation in principle, but it's a recipe for a lot of different things to bubble up at the same time in conjunction with an election year. And I really feel like this is going to be a turning point for us where we're either going to rise to the occasion and take the time to figure out what's real and what's not, or are we going to stay in our bubbles and not pay any attention to messages that we like as opposed to messages we don't like? I'm, I'm really bringing it down, Andrew. I'm sorry. I'm usually very chipper, but somehow this has gotten me all depressed. Oh, <laughs> uh, Okay. Well, there is, there is a, maybe this is just me, but there is a joy in being able to read something that pushes against where your previous thinking is and causes yeah, you to, you're, like, have to turn you're it You're the over. outlier. You're the outlier. <laughs> I love that though. I love when I come across something, I'm like, wait a minute. And then you have to like, and maybe to your point, that's why people look at those things that they don't agree with a little more closely than they do the things that uh, perpetuate the, what they already assume or believe or know to be true. But it, it is really important. And uh, maybe to get back to that second point that I alluded to a, a minute ago, I, a concern that I have as well is that, uh, and I share this when I get to go speak on AI in different places, but last June, I had the opportunity to have a room full of kiddos from across the state uh, in for a conversation about AI. And it was really a unique experience. And I asked in the midst of that, how many of you have used this for academic purposes? And out of about 100 students, 97 of them raised their hand Absolutely. last school year, right? Uh, and so to place that in the context of, okay, well, there's there's the use. And even one of them, when I asked for a definition, turned to chat GPT, it had to create one and read that definition from his phone in real time, right? Uh, so with that being the present reality, and we, Nebraska at least, is this sort of this grassroots approach where we'd love for the classroom teachers to like figure out where this makes sense within the context of what they're doing and let practices rise up out of that before we really speak to any policy. Uh, and I think that that's a pretty sensible place to begin. Um, if you are going to begin somewhere, right, I'm sure you could press into issues with that. But at the same time, I, I like where we're at. Uh, the concern, I guess, to bring all of that to a point would be to say that I feel like education sometimes feels like it's like two steps behind trying to make it one. And with the evolution of this technology moving forward, a concern that I have is all of a sudden we're going to like go maybe this time next year. Maybe we should have a policy for this when we're five <laughs> steps behind trying to make it four. Well, my buddy, Matt Miller, has a great list of questions to ask that teachers can ask the students. Like, how are we defining cheating in this room in this context right now? And how can using and these questions I really like. How can using AI benefit my students? How can using AI harm my students? How could not using AI harm my students? Because if we are really truly trying to prepare our kids for the future, uh, reading textbooks and writing essays, that's not going to do it for them anymore. You know, I have a colleague who is like, wow, they're using ChatGPT to write essays. And I said, why are you still assigning essays then? Because the teachers, Andrew, the teachers who have taught the same year for 20 years, they can't do that anymore. And they're going to have to come up with more creative ways for students to demonstrate their knowledge that, that they can trust. Uh, I read something where the classroom discussions will never become more important than they are now. Because you can't fake that, right? Right. And I, I'm going to come alongside that, too, and say I like the And this is a former English teacher me. 
But I like the idea of modeling the ways in which this could extend your efforts at the end of each step of the writing process, right? So yeah. I'm going to do my research. And then when I get done with my research and have some conclusions, then I'm going to ask the technology to round out my thinking. And, you know, feel free, people can push back and say, well, that's not how it's going to work when they access this technology in the future. No, but we're still learning how at this phase in their life and education, how to do that step well, so they can critically interact right. with the machine later. <laughs> so, so I think almost like embedding it in the smaller chunks and at the end of asking them to do the process themselves first and letting it be complementary to that process. But we have enhance. to model that because otherwise you're just yeah. going to let it do it for you because it's fast. To enhance, not replace. Yes. There's a brilliant woman in New York at a BOCES there named Doreen Bergman. And what she's been telling her people is that we're going through a shift now where we need to spend more time on process rather than content. She said, I don't care if my kids know the day that the Bastille fell. They can Google that to get that date. What led to that? What were the effects of that? That's what I want my kids to understand. And you know, there's there are school districts that are going to try to block AI, which is short-sighted and futile, <laughs> for one thing. Why not teach the kids, oh, here's a site that you can generate flashcards. Here's a site you can make study guides. Here's a site where you can, oh, a virtual study buddy. Here's a site that'll do a practice quiz for you. We have the tools at our disposal to have these help us rather than harm us. And the news tends to be very alarmist. And like we mentioned earlier, the, the fringe opinions are the ones that get the attention. So, of course, you're going to hear the stories like, well, you know, 70% of Americans think it's going to be the end of the world. Well, who'd you ask? <laughs> Right. There are even, you know, AI sites that can help teachers with, oh, my gosh, there's one where you plug in the URL and it'll give you discussion questions based on that. It'll generate rubrics, which is my least favorite thing in the whole wide world to do is create a rubric. So there are things that, you know, people thought that calculators were going to kill math. <laughs> right. Calculators did not kill math, but it streamlined some of the processes and that's what AI can do in the classroom and in our productivity, streamline it. Um, someone yesterday, and of course I can't remember who it was, said, think of AI as having a thousand interns. They will do whatever you tell them, but you're still gonna have to check it. And you're gonna have to be very, very specific with the instructions. And I thought that was a really interesting way to look at it too, a thousand interns. And maybe one day I'll remember who that was. <laughs> Absolutely. I <laughs> Well, and I love what you were sharing there a moment ago, and it made me think and new thought for me with this is I love the tutor aspect of this that provides students, especially those kiddos who don't necessarily have someone at home for a myriad of reasons that they can go to and get support outside of the school day for the work that they're working on. How easy would it be to put together a prompt? that you could share with them that at least tells the technology that you are an AI tutor, please do not give me answers, <laughs> but you can totally we, do that. Oh yeah. That. And you get, as and, a school, just add that to the bottom of your little flyer that you send out or someplace kids could copy and paste it. And I do think kids would go, thanks. Cause I actually need to know this to mm -hmm. be successful in this other context. And, and I didn't realize I could interact with the technology that way because we're not 
at a point yet where uh, I feel like the integration for, and we've got to be careful too, because I don't want a four, fourth grader, right? Having access to chat GPC, but I'm not like, like some of those technologies too, we, we shouldn't for obvious reasons, push students into those spaces yet. But I think the potential is there, moral story. And I think that there's a difference between going to Google saying, explain the conflict in the Middle East because Google's monetized, right? But if you ask ChatGPT, for example, it will give you a really, really good description. So as far as, and we're circling, oh, I hate that phrase, circling back, but we're going back to the election year. You could use ChatGP for real issue analysis, real context behind issues. There are AI sites that'll analyze debates for you. We can use it for our benefit. Is it still really new and are parts of it still scary? Of course. And when the telephone came out, people thought they'd get struck by lightning if they used it. So I think we're in that phase right now. <laughs> yeah, gosh, Julie. And I, I love that we just got a chance to go back and forth here a little bit about things and just kind of give space to a lot of different topics that... I really want your listeners to know that I am typically a happy, optimistic person, but for some reason, I just kind of, I just kind of went dark today. <laughs> Well, I, I hope they would think the same, uh, what I try to bring to these conversations <laughs> as well. But I, I do think that it's good to just have that healthy skepticism and then operate from a what can we do about it kind of standpoint. And yeah. I love the example that you gave there, right? Like even maybe putting a prompt together to where it sets the, the tech up as a debate partner to press into your ideas. There are uh, even AI sites for debates that you can do that. Um and public speaking, like you can practice your presentations and it'll count your uhs and ums and give you feedback. There's just, there's a lot of ways that we can use it for our benefit. Well, thanks for taking a little bit of time today to just talk through some of those things and to help us be a little bit better and thinking about how we uh, perceive and hold accountable the media that we interact with, particularly at this time and moving into 2024. And I guess to maybe bring things to a close and to end on whatever note it is that you would like to end on. Um, <laughs> what, yeah, would you kind of leave our uh, listeners with as maybe a parting message or a, a call to action? Yeah, it, if I had 30 seconds, I would say, um, you know, the average American is consuming between 11 and 12 hours a day of mass media messages that are not necessarily created for their benefit. So we need to ask questions. Who's the sender? What's their motive? How is the message designed? What information is left out? Who benefits from this? Just constantly asking. It's critical thinking. It's just critical thinking is what it is. But it's more important than ever. And false information has been around forever. It's just now it travels at the speed of light and we can create it by ourselves. So we need to have a healthy skepticism without being too cynical, which might be the challenge. Oh, well, thanks so much for your time and for today's conversation. Uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, for folks that are interested in following up with Julie, I'll be sure to share her site along with uh, related resources that you've heard mentioned on the podcast and certainly the link to the book as well, so that folks that would like to learn more are able to do that. Oh, thank you, Andrew. And please let your listeners know that if they want to implement media literacy in whatever they're teaching currently in whatever classroom, whatever age level, that they can reach out to me and I will share every resource that I have because that's it important. Media literacy isn't about hating the media. It's just merely saying, God, we spend so much time with it. We should talk about it more than we do. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much. And we'll look forward to connecting with you again here in the future, Julie. I have no doubt. Thanks, Andrew.